Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Rachel Dickinson, author of The Loneliest Places, Loss, Grief, and the Long Journey Home. Rachel Dickinson is a travel writer, essayist, artist, and award-winning author. She is the author of six other books, including American Dynasties, Notorious Reno Gang, and Falconer on the Edge. We spoke to Rachel about the physical, emotional, and spiritual journeys she took after the unimaginable and heartbreaking loss of her son to suicide, and how traveling in unfamiliar territory and spending time deep in nature helped gradually bring some solace to her sadness. Hello, Rachel. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for inviting me, Jonathan. I'm very happy to be here. Well, it's our pleasure, and I look forward to talking with you right now about your book, The Loneliest Places, Lost Grief and the Long Journey Home. Tell us how this book came to be. Okay, um, well, uh, now almost 11 years ago, my son, Jack, who was a 17-year-old at the time, um, died by suicide, and it was a shock to everyone who knew him, and particularly to his family. And I, prior to that, had been a travel writer for quite a while and had written several books. And when Jack killed himself, I thought, I will never be able to write another word. I won't be able to do anything. And for several years, that was true. I pretty much just sat in a chair or I ran away from home. I had two modes and one was to leave and the other was to just stay, but be completely isolated in a chair. But I did start writing. Um, I did a lot of reading of other people's literature about um, grief and loss, like Joan Didion and uh, C.S. Lewis. So, you know, I just would, read widely and I wasn't reading self-help book. I was reading memoirs and people who are really trying to grapple with their grief through words. So I decided that I should try to just put down some thoughts and that just kept going and going until I finally had almost enough for a book. Well, you, you had uh, you had mentioned reading uh, different authors to get their take on grief, and you chose one of the greats, T.S. Eliot. In the beginning of your book, you state, T.S. Eliot wrote the line, these fragments I have shored against my ruins, toward the end of his 1922 poem, The Wasteland. And while there is an agreement on what exactly this line refers to, I like to think that the fragments are bits and pieces of our past we should be collecting to help make sense of the world around us. This is what I have done in the loneliest places. How did collecting these fragments of your past help you process the incomprehensible pain and grief of the loss of your son? I knew that I felt much more comfortable kind of dwelling in the past in a way. I live in Freeville, which is a tiny village outside of Ithaca and five generations of my family have lived here. And but my family goes back in Tompkins County to a Revolutionary War um, deed, land, land deed from service in 
the Continental Army. So my family has been here forever. And I, I really feel this place, but I feel it in a fragmentary way myself. And I drive through, I recognize things, things remind me of other things in the past, things that both I experienced or that my ancestors might have experienced. I, am, I feel like the molecules of my very being are really um, kind of entwined with the molecules that swirl around in my village. So it's all fragmentary to me. And I knew that by trying to put some of these things together on the page, past history, family history, uh, geological history, I might be able to make sense of what had happened to me. And, and I didn't know how that was going to work, but my instinct was to just try to write my way out of the whole thing. And so, but it started as fragments and including, I spent one year writing really bad poetry and none of that is included in the book, but it, it did help me with my visuals, I think, because I would sit at Dryden Lake, which is kind of like a big pond really near where I live. And I would just look at the birds and I'd watch the clouds and I would sit there and just write down my, my little, these little fragments of things I had seen. So fragments became really a way that I was trying to deal with the past and move forward into the future, hoping they would all just coalesce at some point. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. And thank you also for sharing uh, your family history. I, did, I didn't know that, the deep roots that your family has yeah. in the area. And I think it's interesting because you there's this you mentioning these deep roots and that every atom and cell in your body is connected to uh, the land. And yet you also describe your father and yourself as uh, peripatetic, which I had to look up Greek for <laughs> getting, walking about. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that that's interesting that you learn to see more clearly by leaving your your deep roots. And that is something that some people have more than others. You know, I think that in many ways, our, our you know, ancestral past, deep ancestors, you know, were uh, nomadic. And, but there's also, you know, up until the modern day, there's also the, the sense of pilgrimage, um, mm -hmm. and that there's you know, the pilgrimage of the Australian walkabout or Homer's Odyssey, uh, or you had mentioned you had spent some time on the island of Iona and that there are pilgrims that go to, to, uh, to that island. Um, mm -hmm. Tell us how this journey away allowed you to have a journey back inwards. I think initially it started as a way to run away from home, although it I had always been a very eager traveler and which led me to do travel writing in the first place. I, I knew that I felt really comfortable when I was in these, what I called the loneliest places in some ways. So five weeks after Jack died, I found myself in the Falkland Islands. And this is 6,000 miles away from home. It's as far away from home as you can get basically you know, way down south in the South, the South Atlantic Ocean. And this was a journey I had um, 
arranged in November. So like, you know, four months earlier and all of these moving parts had to be put in place. I had an assignment to write about the 30th anniversary of the Falklands War. So, so I was going there, you know, with the intent of really talking to people who had been alive, you know, when the island was invaded by the Argentinians. And, but I didn't quite know what I was walking into. And I found that I loved, loved the landscape. It was really reminded me of being like in, in the islands of, um, in the Outer Hebrides, you know, very windswept landscape where it was just filled with animals like, um, you know, elephant seals and really um, interesting um, penguins, five different species of penguins. So it's like, the, it was familiar yet not familiar to me. But the one thing I did realize when I was there that I would not be seeing Jack out of the corner of my eye. I had gone to a place where he had never been. And for some reason, I kind of established this rule in my mind that if I was someplace Jack had never been, I would never see him. And so that made traveling really the only way to feel some relief of the just crushing grief and sorrow that accompanied me when I was sitting at home. So, but what I also found in the Falkland Islands, it was ironic that I was there to really talk to these people who had been invaded. I just found a, a whole lot of people going through post-traumatic stress syndrome. And I would look at their faces and I'd listen to their stories and I, my mind would wander as I, you'd hear the braying of a penguin behind you. And I would just think, wow, I am looking at someone who I recognize this look. This is someone who has been really damaged in some way by something that happened to them that they will never get over. And I felt like I was looking in the mirror. So I didn't always feel that way, obviously, when I went other places, but I did have this yearning to just get away and periodically. And I know that um, it worried members of my family, I think. They're like, why is she not home? Why is she insisting on going to the Falklands or to Iceland or these various places? And I always just went to these very lonely places that had more nature than human habitation. So it made me feel better. That's why I did it. Yeah, yeah. That makes, it, it makes it makes sense. I mean, it, it obviously didn't make sense at the time necessarily in your family, I read in the book, you know, there were, mm -hmm. what's going on? Why is Rachel leaving us? And it caused a rift within the family. But in hindsight, it certainly makes sense. Particularly, as you were saying earlier, uh, you know, that with your uh, family connection, your family history, the ancestors that you could feel viscerally of many mm -hmm. generations there, you couldn't, you can't escape it. That as you were saying that you could see Jack perhaps out of the corner of your eye, going to a place where Jack has never been reduces the odds of, of that happening. And that brings up the idea of, of, a, of a spiritual journey as well. Mm -hmm. uh, 
And so I, I was really fascinated to hear of your visits to the spiritual community of Lilydale, um, which I've visited a couple of times myself as well. And I just find the place fascinating. And for those listeners who don't know Lilydale, it's a community of spiritualists. I think it's been around since the maybe mid 1800s or, or was it? Uh, yeah, probably 1880s. 1880s. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's basically a, a place where a lot of spirit mediums are psychic mediums who have the potential to communicate uh, to the other side, the veil of the other side. Mm -hmm. um, and yet you had connected with a, a medium named Drew Kali. And in the book, you said that he stated while he was in trance that the message I'm getting is for you to stop observing and be willing to participate. And so I was curious, writing your book is is doing that. You know, you 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 are observing and and being self-reflective and participating in detailing your story and detailing your inner world mm -hmm. and bring it to the outer world. Um, mm -hmm. And you're also participating with a larger community now. You're sharing your story to yeah. the group rather than keep it to yourself. And by doing so, you offer a way to help others who are trying to survive tragic events, the suicide of their child or, or even the the individuals you were mentioning in the Falkland Islands or anyone that's experienced a, uh, uh, a trauma mm -hmm. uh, and are trying to live with the intense emotions that, that come from that. And in that vein, what spiritual insights are you willing to share uh, that helped you or, or could help others find peace amongst the sadness? Well, I, I grew up, I grew up in Freeville, the village I still live in. And I attended the Methodist church there. And when I was older, when I was an adult, I was the choir director. So, but I never, I was never baptized. And I never embraced it fully. I, I had this real problem in believing, you know, making that leap of faith, which is in embracing faith itself. So I was more interested in kind of the rituals of religion. And I loved the music that was associated with the Methodist church. But on the other side of my little village was a spiritualist camp, which um, was occupied in the summer with mediums who would come and stay in these little cottages, but they would give readings at a, this tiny auditorium that was on the camps. And we would just kind of stand in the back of the room as kids and just listen to what these mediums were saying. And it wasn't, and it was just kind of this kind of cool parlor trick in a way when I was a kid, it was fascinating. I was always fascinated with it. But when I got older and I did have a chance to go to Lilydale and I've been there several times now, like yourself, I, it's like, I can't get enough of it. There's something about being able to go from place to place to place in Lilydale, where you will find mediums who have gathered at these places to give these little public readings. There would be like three mediums who would stand at, at the Temple of Truth or at the um, Inspiration Stump and a little crowd would be in front of them and a medium would look at someone and point at them and say, may I come to you? And then you have to answer aloud so they get a sense of your voice. And I got so I could figure out who were the really good mediums and who weren't. 
by the kind of detail they were giving and you know things that made sense to me there were there were ones who i didn't think were very good who really were listening to various cues that they would get from what someone would say so you know i knew to just keep my mouth shut basically and listen to what they were saying but i really got a feeling that um some of them just made shivers go down my spine because i knew what they were saying had come from someplace that was not known to me. And when Drew Callie, I happened to be in a course, taking a course from him on you know, developing your mediumship as if I had any, um, I should be so lucky, I think. But he was talking to us about colors and auras and seeing various things. And he just stopped in the middle of this and he pointed at me and he said, I just have to tell you, um, I see this old man standing behind you and he's holding his head and he's not very tall. And he completely described my father. And, and he, he said, did he die because of something with his head? And I said, yes, he had a stroke. So, I mean, like he, and he gave me these little clues about who this person was. And he kept going and he said, wow, there are other people crowding around, including there's someone I don't know, the, a name that begins with J. And I was so thrown off by my father's appearance. I said, well, he was married five or six times and all of the women he married, their names began with the letter J. And he, he said, that's not it. This is someone who's very musically gifted. And I said, oh, could have been my mother, Jane. You know, completely forgetting that my son Jack was very musically gifted and was somewhere in, you know, in the afterlife. And it wasn't until much later that my cousin pointed out, uh, he was coming to you to tell you about Jack. Jack was there and wanted you to participate more in life, basically. And so I, it was just this shocking revelation that I had been spoken to in some way. So it made me feel better that I, like I, it gave me some kind of proof that there was something beyond where I was. It kind of ripped at that veil that I always kept between myself and faith. It's uh, so, I don't know, you know, it's my whole notion of spiritualism and spirituality really comes from my relationship to nature and to the land. And I have spent the last 10 years really observing both of those things and um, really taking in the landscape of every place I go and noticing what's around me and what's around the animals. And to me, that that's the real touchstone. And that's the thing that I think really helped me get through this um, past decade more than anything else was being and so just being able to go outside and look, I have a huge walnut tree in my backyard. And I, one year I took a photo every single day from the same window of this walnut tree in this little playhouse. And I put it on Facebook every day and Instagram. And I, the walnut tree had a huge following at that point because 
and we would watch it go through the whole the change of the seasons and it I became so kind of entwined with this walnut tree and for me that's what gave me kind of uh, a feeling of grace and a feeling of um, just contentment in a way was watching closely watching this one tree go through four seasons so that's where I turn to and the spiritualism and spiritualist stuff is just kind of the icing on the top of the cake for me it's the yummy part you know that I get to go and just I have no preconceived notions about this stuff at all and I thoroughly enjoy it when I am at um, Lilydale, thoroughly enjoy it. That's great. That's great. That's beautiful. Wow. Yeah. It's um, it's so much to unpack. But I, yeah, we don't we don't need science to tell us this. But I know that 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 there's this whole idea of you know nature therapy or forest therapy. I think the Japanese call it forest therapy. And the the scientific studies that they've done, they show. I think they looked like cortisol levels and, and mm-hmm. different indicators of stress. And they said just 10 minutes of being in nature radically reduced people's stress. Yeah. And just hearing your the story, I love, I love uh what you did when you take a picture of the same scene over and over. I, I've seen people do that as well. Mm-hmm. But to have it tied to nature and seeing the the tree blossom and then lose its leaves and then the, the, the darkness of winter, mm-hmm. like it it puts you in and I think why nature, one of the reasons why nature is so healing is that you realize that there is this, I don't know, natural intelligence and there's a natural cycle. And we're, we're a part, we are, even though we like to think some of us uh, uh, more so that you know, we're somehow removed from nature. We're not, I mean, we, we are nature. We, we we're part from, of this, this whole continuum. This. Yeah, like yeah. watching the life cycle of this tree is very interesting to me and I've watched it grow we've lived in this same house for 20 years and so I've really witnessed 20 years worth of growth on this tree and I've also uh, witnessed 20 years of how it the effects of living with a wall a black walnut tree in particular you can't grow certain things that are within its rain shadow. So I have a garden that I have to keep moving back (laughs) as the tree grows larger. And that's been fascinating to me. Just like, okay, you know, it's doing its thing. Yeah. Yeah. My territory. There's a lot of territory there at this point. So I just love that there's and I do feel completely at ease when I'm by the walnut tree it is my tree there's no doubt about it but I you know I'd love walking through any kind of natural environment and always aware that I could break my ankle everywhere you know because I it's like okay we had a black walnut in our yard and uh the squirrels would would Oh my God! They were some yeah. of the biggest squirrels in the area. Oh yeah, and they <laughs> throw they, 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 they could at target you. you. They would like they yeah. were like expert. If I was underneath there, they would they would find a way to try to drop them on me. I couldn't believe oh, it. Yeah, exactly. It's like why are you wasting those? It's like keep <laughs> them up there. Yeah, we. I love watching the squirrels, but we have gray and red squirrels here, 
And we also have one black squirrel, which has been fascinating. And they all just kind of share this tree during um, certain seasons of the year. And it's, it's great to watch. And, and the birds are amazing as well. Nice, nice. One last question I had was, you know, I, I do uh, I do think that uh, as I was saying before that that you sharing your story has has the opportunity to help others uh, who are going through similar situations. If you had an opportunity uh, to meet someone who who has uh, gone through what you have done gone through or or experienced some sort of trauma, and you were handing them your book, do you have any what what would you say to them? I would say this is one person's experience of going through the worst thing that can ever happen to a parent. And I, I feel like there are things in this book that really touch on universal truths and that I found that I was soothed by reading other people's memoirs about their journey through these through this terrible time and watching how they grew stronger over a period of time that's my hope for this book is that people will pick this up and say they do say oh my god it's you know you start out as just so intense and then i as time goes on the writing gets a little looser, their humor comes into it. You know, you could, it's literally like watching me unfurl from being, you know, tight like a pine cone for a lot of it. And I finally, I just kind of relax the, the little things on the pine cone and I let more of the world interact with me and me interact with the world. And I think this is something that everyone goes through this just, I have a different way of saying it. And so there are a lot of books on grief out there, but each one has its own little way of, of talking about it. And I'm hoping that the way I describe grief and my journey will be helpful to someone else. That's great, that's great. Thank you for sharing your story, bringing us on your journey. And I know your words have helped bring healing to yourself and they most certainly will do the same for the many readers of your book. Thank you, Jonathan. I really appreciate your kind words about the book. That was Rachel Dickinson, author of The Loneliest Places, Loss, Grief, and the Long Journey Home. You can follow Rachel on Twitter at Rachel Birds and view her photos and artwork on Instagram at geology26. If you'd like to purchase Rachel's new book, use the promo code 09POD to save 30% on a website, cornellpress.cornell.edu. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.